Our times are characterized by rapid social change. What was once acceptable is no longer accepted. What was once assumed is no longer assumed. Two dramatic events happened this week to illustrate the point. Did you see that a Jewish football player was the most valuable player in the Super Bowl? Did you watch the game? It was a boring defensive struggle, but the one player who stood out was Jewish Julian Edelman. Edelman, who has a Jewish father, was not raised Jewish, but identifies as a Jew now, gradually embracing Judaism over his 32 years. He took pride this week in describing himself as the first Jewish Super Bowl MVP. You know what? It's good enough for me. If he walks like a Jew, talks like a Jew, acts like a Jew, and plays football like a Gentile, he's Jewish enough. Julian Edelman is kind of what you would expect a Jewish football player to be. In football terms, he's a shrimp. 5'10", 198 pounds, not gifted with any blazing natural talents. But he's a genius in finding holes in the defense for Tom Brady to pass to. He's relentless, the title of his new memoir. Edelman just grinds away, employing brains as much as brawn to affect the outcome of the game. He never gives up and never concedes, frustrating these huge, hulking, defensive linesmen, linemen to no end. Their frustration almost comes through the television screen. How did we let this Jewish pint-sized faux football figure fool us yet again? Frank Edelman, Julian's father, loved that his undersized son played football from an early age. Father Frank was even Julian's coach from youth through college. So much has changed. It used to be that Jewish parents would never allow their diminutive offspring to play football at any level, even touch football, even flag football. No way. My parents told me, go to medical school first and then play football. There actually was once a famous Jewish NFL player. Sid Luckman was the Jewish star quarterback for the Chicago Bears in the 1930s and 40s. Luckman's father was a tailor in Brooklyn. Of course, he wasn't into his son's football career, and he rarely saw him play. But one Sunday, the Bears were in New York playing the Giants at the Polo Grounds. And Luckman arranged for his parents to have a seat on the 50-yard line. For most of the first quarter, things went smoothly. Luckman was passing crisply and moving the team up and down the football team all up and down the football field but on one play the bears pass protection broke down giant gentile 
giant defenders came rushing in, converging on a 197-pound Jewish quarterback. Luckman's parents, Meyer and Ethel, immigrants from Germany, were horrified. As the play broke down, Luckman began to scramble back and forth. He ran up and down, dashing from one sideline to the other, trying with all his might to evade the ever-encroaching Gentile giants. As he was running around the field, amidst the din and the noise, suddenly Luckman heard his father call out from the 50-yard line, Sydney! Give him the ball, I'll buy you another one. <laughs> That's how Jewish parents used to behave. The second example of our rapidly changing mores occurred a day later. You following what's happening in Virginia? What a soap opera. What a perfect illustration of our time. Future historians will look back at this Virginia week and teach their graduate students what our era was all about. First, the governor, Ralph Northam, admitted that in his medical school yearbook, he was either the person wearing blackface or the person wearing a Ku Klux Klan outfit. As if it makes a difference, jeez. Blackface? Face or the Klan. The next day, facing a barrage of demands to resign, the governor reversed his confession, saying that on reflection, neither of the people in the photograph was him, although he admitted to wearing blackface on a separate occasion. The governor has essentially dropped out of public view. No one has seen him for a week as he is ostensibly contemplating his future. But not to worry. There would be no crisis of leadership. The Virginia Constitution spells out that in the event of the incapacitation or resignation of the governor, the lieutenant governor steps in. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> The lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, didn't call on Governor Northam to resign, but issued a statement saying, I believe that the governor has to make a decision in the best interests of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, we know what that means. <laughs> Get out, make room for me. Alas, no sooner did the lieutenant government, governor issue his statesman-like statement. He was accused of a sexual assault, too sordid for me to describe in this setting. And earlier today, I saw that another woman accused the lieutenant governor came forward with allegations. Frankly, as a man, I'm still surprised. I shouldn't be, but I am. And I am embarrassed and angry at what so many 
men seem to have done and do. Aside from all of the issues of the Me Too movement that has been brought to light, for me, it's simply insulting to manhood. All these men with power from all kinds of different backgrounds, what kind of man does these things? Who taught them? Who taught them how to be a man? Who guided them? Where did they learn to behave as a man? For the record, the lieutenant governor denied the accusation, not by saying it didn't happen, but that it was consensual. You decide. Read the statement of Professor Vanessa Tyson. But not to worry. <laughs> there would be no crisis of leadership in Virginia. The Virginia Constitution spells out that in the event of the incapacitation or resignation of the governor and the lieutenant governor, the Virginia Attorney General steps in as governor. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> the Attorney General, Mark Herring, seemed to all to be an acceptable alternative, third in line for the governorship. No sooner was that constitutional succession clarified than the Attorney General also admitted to wearing blackface in college. And just when we thought it was all over, yesterday, I don't know if you caught this, the Virginia State Senate Majority Leader, Thomas Normand, also faced a barrage of questions about blackface, racism, and anti-Semitism in his college yearbook when he was its managing editor. What's going on in Virginia? What's going on in the country? And what's the deal with blackface? Did you do these things in your younger years? Did it dawn on you? Perhaps it was common for young people, especially in the South, to put on blackface. And you know what? I'm prepared to accept that in certain limited cases, entertainers did it for entertainment, and it might have been funny or tolerated in a certain era. But all those students, all those yearbooks, they all knew, even then, that blackface was to mock to abuse. It was racist even then, proffering a mindset of white superiority. That's why they're so, so ashamed today. They knew then that it was abusive. They knew it was wrong. 
And the same goes for the type of behavior described by Dr. Tyson and Dr. Blasey Ford and so many more women who have come forth to tell their stories. These behaviors are cringeworthy as a human being and as a man. They're so hard for me to read. You can't hide behind changing social mores to excuse this kind of behavior. It's wrong now. It was wrong then. And everyone knew it. And everyone knows it. So yes, we're living in dramatically changing social times. But when you stop and think more deeply, the essence of these types of behaviors, the basic values represented by these abuses are recognized from time immemorial as wrong. We know and knew that they are wrong. Hasn't changed for thousands of years. What has changed is bringing them to light, talking about them, and prosecuting them at least in the court of public opinion. The Talmud describes how the great sage Elazar, son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, was riding on his donkey, his head swollen with pride because he was so learned in Torah. He came upon a very ugly man, according to the Talmud, who said to him, greetings, my rabbi. But Rabbi Elazar did not return his greeting. Instead, he said to the man, worthless person, how ugly you are. Are all the people of your city as ugly as you? The man responded, I don't know, but you should go back to the craftsman who made me and ask how ugly is this vessel you made. In other words, he said to the Torah scholar, go ask God who created both you and me why I'm so ugly. At that moment, Rabbi Elazar realized that he had sinned a great sin. He descended from his donkey, prostrated himself before the man, and begged for forgiveness. These kinds of sins, the abuse, the ridicule, and objectification of others are not new. They are ancient. And we always knew they were wrong. They require begging for forgiveness. Real, sincere, heartfelt, authentic repentance. Not just merely mealy-mouthed or fake regret. The man in the Talmudic passage didn't forgive Rabbi Elazar at first. He might have felt that his private apology wasn't enough. As a leading public figure, Rabbi Elazar had to demonstrate public contrition. 
through public behavior, not only words. So the Talmud describes how both men entered the city, and it was only in the presence of the city, the masses, the public, that the man agreed to forgive the great rabbi, provided, said the man, that Rabbi Elazar not become accustomed to such behavior. In other words, that the rabbi change his ways permanently. Thereupon, the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Elazar immediately entered the study hall and taught his students, his disciples, and eventually us, we who are reading this passage and are living thousands of years later, not to abuse, not to ridicule, not to be prideful and haughty, and not to objectify other people. We know what is right. We may prefer to ignore it. But deep down, we know what is right. We've known it for thousands of years. 